Have you ever gotten lost? Like really, really lost. And I imagine some of you are like, yes, like the past two days, like walking around campus trying to find, where's Marsh Life? Where's Lafayette? I know it's hard. I'm not talking about that kind of lost. I'm not talking the kind of loss that happens when you go to Costco and you get stuck in all of these aisles that sort of like look the same. I mean so lost that it was scary. Have you ever gotten that kind of lost? And if you have, can you remember what it was like when you were found? And I remember going to Toronto uh, as a kid with my family uh, I remember walking on a crowded city street with my family one night. I was a little kid at the time, so all I could see was the CN Tower like looming high above me and a bunch of legs shuffling all around me. And I remember I was walking next uh, to my sister, Taya. And I don't remember if she was holding onto my hand um, or if she was holding onto my mom's hand or my dad's hand. But I do remember that at one point she let go. I remember she was there one minute and then she was gone the next. I remember my mom painfully crying out her name, Taya, where are you? Tears coming down her face. And I remember seeing panic on my dad's face, which was something I had never seen before. I also remember the tearful reunion that that occurred a couple blocks later uh, when Taya was finally found. Today we're looking at Genesis 3. Okay, it is a story of letting go. It's a story of hide and seek. And it's a story of being found. It's not just those things, as I mentioned to you. It's also the first time that we are introduced uh, to a question from God in the Bible. This is the very first question that God is posing uh, in the Bible. Where are you? Where are you? You see, it's not just Adam and Eve who have run and hid from God. You and I do the same thing too. We run and hide as well. But why? Why do we do this? Why do we run? Why do we hide? It's kind of a two-part question, but I want to ask it tonight. Why? Why do we run and hide? Secondly, I want to ask, how? How is it that you and I run and hide from God? And thirdly, what? What does God do uh, in response? So these are some of the questions I just want to ask tonight. Why, how, and what? But first, why? Why do we run and hide? Well, we run from God because we doubt his love for us. We run from God because we don't think he loves us. We see the seeds of doubt sown here uh, first uh, in Genesis 3. The seeds of your doubt, the seeds of my doubt, the seeds of Adam and Eve's doubt. It was cast first and foremost here in the story that we read tonight uh, and told in Genesis 3. And here's what happens. When the devil disguised as a snake, right, when he invades our planet with the intention of turning us away from God... Um, he doesn't try to convince us that there is no God. That's not what the devil tries to do. He knows that's kind of a hard sell. Right? God has just planted this amazing garden and filled it with evidences of his goodness and his love for them. He's not 
trying to convince them that there is no such thing as God. Rather, he's trying to convince them that though there may be a God, that God is not good. That he doesn't love you. That he doesn't want what's best for you. That he's holding good things from you. Right? And that life could be better off without him. This is his MO. Right? His strategy. And here's how it works. Okay? In Genesis 2, one chapter before, God planted a garden and he filled it with a ton of trees. Thousands, maybe millions of trees. Beautiful to look at, also good for food. And he says to Adam and Eve, look, all of this is yours. It's all yours. It's for you. You can eat from anything and everything in this beautiful garden. But I'm asking you, don't eat from this one particular tree over here. There's this one tree I'm asking you not to eat from. A tree that is called the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why would God do that? Like, why would God say that? Don't eat from this tree. Two reasons, I think. One is that God wants them to learn the difference between good and evil. He wants them to know that. There's nothing evil about knowing good and evil. But he wants them to learn it in the right way. He doesn't want them to take shortcuts. Right? There's no shortcuts to being wise. Don't take the shortcut of thinking, oh, if I could just grab this fruit, then I'd be wise. He's like, no, learn good and evil as you listen to me and obey my voice. But the second reason that God doesn't want them to eat uh, from the fruit of the tree is actually has to do with love. You see, in order for love to be true love, there has to be choice. There has to be free will. Adam and Eve have to have the ability to say yes to God or no to God if love is going to be real. You know, God could have made a world, a world full of creatures who were programmed to say yes to him all the time. But that would have been a world full of robots. And God didn't want a world full of robots. God wanted a world full of image bearers, men and women capable of knowing God and showing God, reflecting his heart and his character to the world around him. And that required choice. And so God plants a tree in the middle of the garden and says, it's all yours, but just don't eat from this one, please. Well, in enters the snake. He slithers up to Eve, slides up, and he whispers into her ear. Right, did God actually say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, he says we can eat from all of them, except for one. But here's how you know. Here's how you know that the snake's poison has entered into her bloodstream. Here's how you know that the seeds of doubt, that God is not good, he doesn't want what's best for me, they've actually started to take root in her heart. Because Eve adds this. She says, we can't eat of this fruit, but we can't even touch it. We can't even touch it. Now, if you grab a Bible and you turn to page one, page two, and you read, you'll see God never said such a thing. You just asked him not to eat it, but she's already believing that this God is a control freak. This God is stingy. Again, the devil does not need to convince us that there is no God. You can still believe in God and hate him. And the devil is case in point. All he has to do is convince you that God is not good 
that he cannot be trusted, that he doesn't love you, that he doesn't have your best interests at heart. Look, if you believed these things, if you believed that God loved you, that he had, his, that he had your best interests at heart, you would always do what he says. You would always do it. But you don't. You don't always do what he says. Because you doubt. You sin because you doubt that God loves you and he wants what's best for you. Now, this is the reason why we run, right? If we run because we doubt God's love for us, we hide because we are afraid. We hide because we're afraid. We're afraid of being punished. We hide because we're afraid that God is going to punish us. You've all seen the sign uh, in the expensive glass shop, right? If you break it, you buy it. Or you broke it, you bought it, right? Well, look at the world around you. And look at your own interior life. The world, not just out there, but the world in here. Yes, it is beautiful, but it's also painfully broken too. The world out there, the world in here, it is broken. And we, have, we share some of the blame. When God says, love me, love others, don't lie, don't cheat, don't murder, don't steal... In some ways, it's like saying, hey, this is the way that I made the world. You're going to want to put gas in the gas tank, not orange juice. If you put gas in the gas tank, this thing's going to run just, just smoothly. It's going to run great. But if you put something else in it, it's going to break. Right? We ignore his advice. We do what we want. I want to put orange juice in there. And things start to break down. And we see evidence of that in the world around us and also in our own lives. You can say that the glass shop is falling down all around us, and our fingerprints are on the glass. None of us here is innocent. Nobody can stand up in this room and say, I have lived a perfect life. I have lived a life without blame or blemish. I have never hurt anybody or anyone. You cannot say that. I can't say that. None of us can say that. The glass shop is falling down around us. Our fingerprints are on the glass. And, this, and somebody has to pay the damages, right? You break it, you buy it. Somebody's got to pay. And this is why we hide. We hide because we know that we're guilty. We hide because we know we've done wrong and we deserve condemnation. We hide because we don't want to have to pay up. Genesis 3.10, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Okay, this is, leads us to point number two. Okay, how do we hide? How do we hide? Well, what drives Adam and Eve into the bushes is a combination of guilt as well as shame. Okay, Adam feels guilt. He's afraid of punishment, so he hides in the bushes. But Adam also feels shame, the sense of nakedness, of being exposed. So he covers up with fig leaves. Both are at play here, guilt as well as shame, and they're not the same thing. Right? Guilt is, I made a mistake. Shame is that voice that says, I am a mistake. Do you catch the difference? Right? I made a mistake versus I am a mistake. He's experiencing both. You experience both. And it leads him to hide in the bushes. Well, 
you probably aren't hiding in bushes unless you're playing paintball, right? That's not how you hide from God, not by hiding in bushes, but you do hide from God, just albeit in different ways. One of the ways that you try to hide from God is through good work. You try to hide from God through good work. It might sound strange, but it's like if... If I, at least if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm good enough, if I'm like keeping up with everybody else around me, if I'm slightly better, maybe he won't notice me, right? Maybe I can keep him at, like, at an arm's length. You know, in America, we have the saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Uh, in Japan, it's a little similar. Um, the nail that sticks out gets hammered. It's the same idea, same concept. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. The nail that sticks out gets hammered. Well, we don't want to be the squeaky wheel. We don't want to get the grease. We don't want to get hammered. So we just try to be good. At least better than the person beside us. We don't want to stick out too much. Another way that you try and hide from God is by keeping busy. You run from class to class, from activity to activity, so that nobody, not even God, can touch you. And keep up with you. It's like, where's Chris? Where's Michael? Where's Sophia? I'm not just picking on these three. Like, you can put your own name in, insert your own name here. But where are you? I don't know. I never see them. They're all over the place. You hide from God and you hide from others by keeping busy. You try to block people out. You try to block God out using a block schedule. You hide behind good works. You hide behind your busyness. You can also hide behind drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol are certainly a way of hiding. Right? Anything to escape the reality that you are God's creature and you are living in God's world. You are not your own. Using drugs and alcohol as a way of like shutting, closing your eyes and sort of like tuning out of reality, it kind of reminds me of my daughter uh, playing hide and seek. Not because she's into drugs and alcohol, but, <laughs> but because of the way she plays hide and seek. My, my daughter's awesome. Hopefully you'll meet her. Uh, her name's Willa. She just turned two. Awesome kid. Terrible hide and seeker. She's terrible at this game. What she will do is she'll run behind something like this uh, stand and she'll stand behind it and then she'll close her eyes because she thinks, if I, close, if I can't see you, you can't see me, right? You can't see me, right? That's how she plays this game. And you, of course, like, we laugh. They're like, that's so stupid. But look, we're doing it all the time, right? You use drugs and alcohol. You're like hiding and you're just closing your eyes and you're like, I can't see you. But he can see you, right? You're right there, right? It's a way that you hide. Another way that you try to hide, and this is the last that I'll mention. That's, I'm sure that we could come up with more. But it's simply um, by avoiding God conversation. Another way that you try to hide is simply by not showing up. And I know you all showed up tonight. But it's true, right? You can be present and not present at the same time. You could come here, check a box, and then just, you know, run right out. Um, You could be here, surrounded by people who 
love you, want to get to know you, but you don't want to get too involved, right? You don't want to get too close. You want to hide. Um, there's lots of ways you can hide here at UVM. There are plenty of good grades and causes for you to get behind. There are plenty of people to blend in with. There's plenty to keep you busy here. And there's plenty of drugs and alcohol, too. There's plenty to distract you from God conversation on this campus. Odds are you are a pretty good hider. Or that you think you're a pretty good hider. You might be like Willow. But the good news is that no matter how good you are at hiding, God is a better seeker. The good news is that even though you might be a good hider, God's a better seeker. That's good news. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me in the passage that you have there. This brings us to our third point. What does God do in response? Look, when we go running and we go hiding, we, we talked about that and how do we hide it. What does God do in response? Look at here at verses 8 and 9 with me. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? You see, when we go hiding, God goes seeking. Where are you? Where are you, Julia? Where are you, Grace? Where are you, Randy? Where are you, Alan? Again, insert your name, right? I'm not just picking on this for. Is God asking this question? Is he asking this question because he can't see Adam, right? Because he can't see you. Is that why he's asking? Well, of course not, right? God can see you and he can see me uh, as surely as I can spot Willa hiding behind a, a microphone or a music stand, right? You're right there, He sees you lost in your busy schedule. He sees you lost in your good works. He sees you lost in drugs and alcohol. He sees you just lost. So what gives? If God knows where we are, if he can see us, why does he ask this question, where are you? Maybe it's not for his benefit so much as it is for ours. Maybe God asking this question, where are you? It's not for him, it's for us. He's forcing reflection. What am I doing? Like, why am I in these bushes? This is silly. Why am I hiding behind a microphone stand or a music stand? You know, this doesn't make any sense. But God isn't just forcing reflection. He's not just trying to get us to think. He's also inviting us to engage with him. He's drawing us out of hiding. And he is inviting us into relationship with him again. What's that going to take? What's it going to take for you to stop running and to stop hiding? Well, in order to stop running, you need to be convinced that God loves you. That's what made you run in the first place. This, this thought that God is not good, he doesn't love me. So in order to stop running, you need to be convinced and 
your soul, right? That God loves you. In order to stop hiding, you need your fears of punishment assuaged. You need that taken away. And this is why tonight, as we wrap things up, I want to take you to Jesus. I want to show you Jesus, and I want to show you his cross. Because it's at the cross of Jesus that all your doubts and all of your fears are answered. Look, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. And the same Bible says that the Son of God and the Son of Man came into the world on a search and rescue mission to seek and save who? To seek and save the lost. It also says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You all know what a ransom is? To pay a ransom is to pay a debt. A ransom is the cost of setting someone free. You and I broke the world, remember? Somebody has to pay the damages. Somebody has to pay the ransom. And Jesus says, let that somebody be me. Let it be me. On the cross, Jesus paid the price. He paid the ransom. paid the penalty for yours and my sins. Look, on the cross, the justice of God was satisfied. There is no more punishment left for you and for me. It is finished. Songs that we sung, it is finished. What that means, friends, is that you can stop hiding. You can stop hiding. But not only can you stop hiding, you can stop running too. You run because you doubt God loves you. But the cross is also proof, not just of his justice, it's a proof of his love for you. God came to earth, he lived a perfect life, and he died the death that you deserve to die so that nothing would ever separate you from his love ever again. You ask, how much does God love me? I don't mean for this to be, I don't know, cute. But you ask, how much does God love me? And God loves you this much. He loves you this much. He loves you a whole lot. You know, I recently watched the 2002 movie, uh, Catch Me If You Can. It stars Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio plays, it's, a tr- it's based on a true life story. He plays in this movie the, the character of Frank Abagnale Jr. Frank was exceptionally good at running and hiding. Uh, by the time of his 19th birthday, he had successfully conned his way into millions of dollars, posing as a Pan Am pilot, a Georgia doctor, and a Louisiana lawyer. Unless you think this is a very nice life, it's not. It was horrible. He was constantly on the run, constantly looking over his shoulder, constantly afraid of the FBI agent, right, who always seemed to be right on his tail. And as I was watching this movie the last time I saw it, the thought struck me. What if Carl Hanratty, the FBI agent who's going after Frank, what if he's searching the world over, not to catch Frank and make him pay up, but to catch Frank and tell him he doesn't have to run any longer because his debt has been paid. He can stop running. He can stop hiding. Well, friends, that's what Jesus has done. Jesus searches the world over for you and for me. 
Not to tell you, hey, I got you, now it's time to pay up. He's looking for you to tell you, you don't need to run and hide anymore. You don't need to run. The debt's been paid. I love you. You know, as we close this sermon, and as you begin a new year here at the University of Vermont, I want you to hear this question afresh. Where are you? Where are you? Why are you running? How are you hiding? And do you see Jesus on a cross, taking your punishment in your place, doing this all because he loves you? Do you know that you don't need to run and hide anymore? I hope that you will. Let's pray. Jesus, thank thank you that it's true that when we run and we hide, you go and you look for us. Not to crush us, but to save us. And to bring us back into a right relationship with you again. I pray that um, you would pursue these students even now. You would pursue me. And I would ask these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.